Midnight in Karachi with Mahvish Murad on Tor.com. My guest today is writer and futurist Madeleine Ashby, whose latest novel is The Fantastic Company Town, out now from Tor. It's a snappy, noir, cyber thriller about a young woman trying to protect those she loves, a woman who is far too human in a world that mostly isn't anymore. Madeline's earlier novels were the first two books in the Machine Dynasty trilogy published by Angry Robot. Welcome to Midnight in Karachi. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Now, right off the bat, I have to ask, what's all this about Company Town partly being inspired by Korean dramas? <laughs> uh so around like it's true like it's true it's you know i'm you know um it, around like 2009 2010 i really got into um korean dramas uh at the behest of a professor that i was working with uh in the east asian studies department at york university where i was getting um my first masters and um i have uh, i was working with her on on some projects and she basically said to me, uh, hey, are you watching Korean dramas? And I was like, actually, no, I watch a lot of Japanese animation, but I have never really gone in for live action, like television series from that part of the world and or, and from Korea in particular. And she's like, well, you got to watch this. And so she directed me to the links to watch um, Coffee Prince and You Are Beautiful and that just started it. Like suddenly, it was like I was lost, and uh, and so as I was watching these, I really got sort of inspired by the way that the different types of women that there were allowed to be in in these dramas, and there were like real sort of tomboys and um, and uh, or what we would call what we used to call tomboys, I guess, and. Um, um, just these women who are like really tough, but also very vulnerable at the same time. I feel like often you get like women on, you know, on American or Canadian or British television who are like tough and that's it. Right. There's not a lot else. Um, it's kind of flat and, and a little bit one dimensional and, you know, um, and so I kind of wanted to poke at that a little bit. Um, and these, heroines are often like sort of plucky and industrious and I really like the industrious side of it but I really can't manage like it really takes a lot for me to get like a super plucky character so so that um that went to the wayside but that industriousness and that sense of being really hard working and getting a, a big sense of identity from having a job and having work and working really hard that was I found really inspiring um, in general. And, uh, um, I wanted to work with that. And so that's why Hua is half Korean. Um, and, uh, to sort of honor her inspiration, I guess. Did you have an elevator pitch for Company Town? What was it? Um, I think I said something along the lines of like, actually, I, I want to say no, like I really kind of didn't like, um, um, which has to do with the publication history of the book, but the um, but I think like when I was initially describing it, I th I said something like, uh, um, "unaugmented person on you know on an oil rig, uh, serial murders, and uh, and the singularity." And and now when I am asked to describe it, like 
my sense of the book changed over time as I worked on it and then as I wrote it and rewrote it and edited it. And now I just, when people ask about it, I'm like, oh, it's just, it's Veronica Mars versus the Terminator. That's what it is. Right. Fair <laughs> enough. That's, that's, a, that's a good pitch, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I wish I'd had that at the beginning. <laughs> right. Now, I remember reading somewhere you saying that you were tired of stories about humans you know, about so humans being just so great that Bella Swan smelled so great, well, basically because she was meat, uh, which, of course, yeah. makes complete yeah. and utter sense. So you wrote the Machine Dynasty stories yes. about self-replicating humanoid robots uh, with yes. Company Town, while pretty much the entire cast of characters are augmented with technology of various sorts. Your protagonist, who isn't at all, she's fully organic, as as you say in the book, and which is what makes her ideal for this gig that she's got as protector to the heir of the company that, you know, well, owns this town or runs this town. Um, what made you go back to the idea of, you know, meat of a purely human body for a protagonist? Um, I had gotten a lot of, um, I'd gotten a lot of criticism over, like, or not even criticism, because, uh, or critique, I guess, uh, in the Machine Dynasty books that, like, there weren't humans in them. And I disagree with that because I think that I wrote perfectly fine humans. The humans just, you know, or I, I think that I wrote perfectly fine people. Right. Those people just right. don't happen to be humans. Like there's that's and I've t whenever I go to to classrooms to talk about VN and ID, which I I have done quite frequently, um, it tends to get taught a lot. Um, uh, I. I, that's the line I draw with students. Like it's like to me, it doesn't matter that they're not human, that they're not human beings. That my characters aren't human beings; they're people, and so I write them like I write people, um, and uh, and stuff. And that comes from a history of like in Canada, for example, women weren't persons uh, for a long time legally, um, and it's only within like the past couple hundred years or or something like that 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 they were deemed to be people. <laughs> and and stuff so the the argument about what makes a human being has always been really fascinating to me so this time around i was i decided like to go in the complete opposite direction and say like oh you want humans i'll give you some humans and uh um and so i wanted to show what it would be like to not have access to the things that make one a human being i guess um, the, in, in that, in the world of company town, what it, what it is to be human means to be post-human and that's what it is to be normal. You know, Hua is not normal. She doesn't have access to a lot of the same technologies that other people take for granted. And so, although she's a fully organic human being, she's still less than. And and is still gets treated as less than. She obviously isn't, you know, less than. She just gets coded that way, I think. And um, and I wanted to do a, a story about what it, how you could still be a human being, and still feel that way. Yeah. yeah. So the idea of being special is kind of turned on its head because everyone's special. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everyone is special. Everyone is special within, the, or has a special, not a special ability, but like they have little enhancements and upgrades and. Yeah. And, like, honestly, what it really is, is a novel about how I didn't have a smartphone until 2013. Is that true? <laughs> a little bit. It's a little bit true. It's a little bit true. Um, I didn't have a smartphone for a really long time because I didn't need one. And uh, and then I was in business for myself and um, and needed 
the and needed the things that a smartphone a smartphone could do for me um but i had no so i got into it very late it was a late adopter i guess you could say um and that's a that's been true of my family for a long time it's not that they're luddites or anything far from it it's that my dad ran his betamax vcr into the ground right like like uh you know he wanted to and and his first and our first the first family computer that we had um was the same story it was like it had to be on its last legs before we would consider upgrading and and stuff so i've always been i guess as a result i'm slightly suspicious of like constant um you know buying or purchasing or consuming uh new technologies just because they're new um, and, and stuff. And I, I believe in sort of waiting for reviews and waiting for, for prices to come down, frankly, and, and things of that nature, because I want to see how people are actually using a thing before I invite it into my daily life. As someone who's, uh, you know, smartphone is surgically attached to her hand. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have to admire your, to admire your, um, refrain, shall we say? I guess um yeah it's weird because um I uh I I love my phone a great deal but I the one that I bought in 2013 is the one that I still have now. Um I'll probably upgrade because Apple is keeping the form factor that um that I like. I'm a short person and I have really tiny hands like Donald Trump tiny hands. Right. And so I need like a small phone. Um which is the other thing that I'm, I get incre- increasingly suspicious about is that you know um, a lot of a lot of upgrades in technology are upgraded only towards a certain demographic, right? Um, and you know, like the classic example is like when the Apple Watch came out, the Health Kit didn't have a way to chart your period, um, and so as a, like it just cut out this this there was this massive blind spot, and I think there's a ma- there are often massive blind spots in technology that you can kind of hack around and make work for you. Um, but I don't like to have to hack around to make things work for me. I like things to work for me. And uh, I'm kind of spoiled that way. I'm going to come back and talk about tech in a little while, but I want to talk about Hua. Where did she come from as a character, as a personality? She's, you know, complicated, shall we say. I loved the moment where, and this is not necessarily a spoiler though this happens later in the novel but I love the moment where a doctor we won't name him but you know doctor who's helped augment Joel the lynch heir tells her that she's so pure she's almost zen when of course she's anything but because in terms of her you know emotional and mental state she's very fraught and I loved her but I also loved that she wasn't necessarily easy to love right away that she was this prickly creature yeah, she's she's very prickly and really angry. Like I, I really like writing about anger. I really like writing about feelings that you're not supposed to feel, um, or that that society says you're not supposed to feel. And one of those, especially in women, is anger. And so I wanted to sort of I'd already sort of plumbed the depths of that a little bit um in Vienna and ID, but um but I really wanted to get into it. Um and I really wanted her to be kind of um complicated and and you know I loved her right away like I loved her a great deal right away but she's also but I loved her because she's unlovable or because she's unlikable I liked that about her um I liked her sort of refusal to um back down or 
make her or soften herself or make herself be nicer or whatever. Um, the world is not nice to her and she is not nice to it. Like, and, and I really liked that about her. Um, I, I really found myself respecting that more and more, um, as, as we, as I spent more time with her, um, and, and stuff. And I, and it's also a thing that like, you know, you come across that a lot in a lot of like other noir stories, right? Um, like, you know, Sam Spade is now peach. Right. <laughs> um, Absolutely. You know, he's just, you know, uh, or, um, you know, my camera or like, you know, the, the guys in Raymond Chandler novels, like, you know, those are, they're pretty horrible. Most of them. Sorry. They're pretty horrible. Most of them. They're pretty horrible most of the time. Yeah. And you never see why. Like, there's never, like, really an explanation of why that is, necessarily. Um, it's just tone. It's just, that's the tone. And so I kind of wanted to dig into what would make a person into that. And it's pretty clear throughout the novel what did make her into that person. Like, why she is the way that she is, is, is pretty obvious. Um, and and so I wanted to sort of dig into that and and what... And wonder like what that would look like on a woman and on and in the future, like how you would get around that and yeah. uh, stuff. So, uh, what it would be like to have that kind of that hard bitten, hard boiled, um, mean, nasty, um, angry, but also completely justified yeah. uh, character. Now, as I was confessing to you before we started recording, cyber thrillers or cyber noir or whatever you know tag you want to give it, these are the kind of books that often take me a very long time to get into as much as I do enjoy them. But I found Company Town and Vienna to be effortless reading, really. Just Company Town in particular, since we're talking about that, very well-paced, so readable. And you know what? Company Town is really funny. <laughs> All the while, I don't know why. Why have people not been... I mean, this is something that I, I laughed out loud at a bunch of things. All the while... You know, it's taking some very pointed political stances on many different things. And it's actually just also really funny. And I wonder if that element balancing humor and these sly little jabs at contemporary social political climate, you know, was that hard? Was it something that comes fairly naturally to you? Keeping it readable, I, keeping it fun, as well as keeping, you know, a very um, having a specific opinion about the world around you. Um, I'm really happy that you found it so funny because I find parts of it very funny. I find Hua there was very some funny. there were some lines where I was just like, I mean, I did just you know, it was a LOL moments, um, as they were. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm really happy about that. Thank you for thank you for saying so. Um, uh, I I watched a lot of Veronica Mars. I watched Veronica Mars about like twice through as I was writing this, and um, and. You also find in in really good noir, like really good noir movies and noir novels, they are funny. Right. Um, you know, if you watch, you know, Dashiell Hammett worked on, you know, did The Thin Man, and the and it's incredibly funny. Um, Veronica Mars is is incredibly funny. Um, even like uh, Double Indemnity, uh, uh, which is uh, Chandler and uh, Billy Wilder working together, is is really funny. Um, there are uh, there are all kinds of snappy one liners, and I think that's kind of part of the medium is that when, or part of the genre. When you do noir, you kind of like that's just built into the to the lineage and the DNA of the of the the genre. And so I kind of wanted to maintain that. You know, it is a noir story. 
And it's really easy to get caught up in the trappings of noir that are like about violence and betrayal and secrets and lies and and stuff like that and forget that there's this kind of you know there's this snappy comeback that is built into the that is part of that as well and and a tone in terms of how you tell the story that um that the person it, that the that the central character is often revealing not a lot about themselves directly but a whole lot in how they tell a story and what they say about other people, what they notice about other people. And that is often really profoundly funny, but in a very mean way. Um, it's not nice funny. It's not like Bob Hope funny. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's nasty. Um, and, and stuff. So I really wanted to preserve that. Um, in terms of readability, um, I'm also really happy that you, that you found that to be the case. Um, I also have that problem with a lot of like incredibly hard SF and, um, and certain, and even like certain like fantasy novels and whatever, like, um, you know, there's the central problem in all genre fiction is one of exposition. That is the, you have to, you have to push up the hill like you and you are never done. It is Sisyphean labor. You are, you are forever pushing that boulder up that hill and the only way to make it lighter is to exposit less. Um, and I tend to avoid expositing as much as humanly possible. I avoid it like a bank statement. Um, the I try never to um, never to really spend a lot of time on it, and um, and I just aside as much as I can. Um, part of that. I think is because exposition is really boring. Like it's really, really boring. Right. Either. Unless you have like insanely good language, even in that case, I tend to get bored. I have to admit, if there's yeah. a lot of it. Yeah, and it's sort of, and it's also not how we live our lives. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's not, you know, in life, people rarely explain things about how things work around them, um, and and it, they might know. They might know how things work, but they often don't, you know, really refer to them a whole lot. Um, no one thinks about, you know, what is going on in their phone or in their um, in their car or whatever, um, or you know, in a light switch when you flick the light switch. Right. Um, and and so I try to avoid explaining that as much as humanly possible because honestly, like, um, I'm way more concerned with whether or not the story works and whether or not the characters work and whether or not the plot works and whether or not, um, you know, those core literary values work, I guess. Um, it's way more important to me that it be a, a good novel before it's a good science fiction novel or a good story before it's a good science fiction story. It has to be, and, and it has to, to me, it has to be a good story first and then those other things. Um, and then fit certain genre conventions and then do certain genre tasks. Um, but if it's not a good story first and it's not well told first and the prose sucks, then there's no point. Um, so I try to make things pretty readable, not by dumbing them down, but just by avoiding a lot of um, expository nonsense that only a few people will ever care about, and which I usually don't. Um, I try to not write the things that I skip over when I'm reading a book. 
I if I find my eyes glazing over um, in something in a novel, then I try to avoid making that same mistake because um, it's it's important to me that the that the book be good first and be a good science fiction novel later. Um, and it's and it's something that I think gets forgotten a lot. Is like you know the the basics of just good good writing or good right. literature, good right. or good right. storytelling are way more important than than any genre overlay. And I and in my favorite science fiction writers, that is also true. They are better. They are great prose stylists first, and then have amazing ideas. Like if you if you read like latter day William Gibson. Um, he exposits less and less and less as he goes. Like yeah. in the peripheral, you spend about 70 pages not knowing necessarily what the hell is going on, but it's beautiful writing. Absolutely. In fact, that's the, the first person that I would think of also when I was thinking about this while reading your book is that I find early Gibson very difficult to get into, though I know he's a really great writer and I know there's a really great story in there. But you're absolutely right. With the peripheral, it, you know, it's changed, of course, as he's obviously gotten better as a writer or... Is, can you say that about William Gibson that he's gotten better as a writer? I, you can, yeah, I right? Say, I wouldn't say that it's like a, a case for it's. It's not a case of improvement. I think that um, uh, it's you know artists have different phases. Sure, right? but you they don't think every book sh- don't you think every book should be an improvement on your last? Oh, for sure. You yeah. You, in the end, like you're only there to beat your own time, right? right? The your 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 greatest competitor is always yourself. Um, so, so yeah, it should always, you should always, and you, and also you are only ever as good as your last project. So sh- you should just always be improving. But what that improvement looks like, I think is different for different writers. Sure. Um, um, like I know a lot, I know a lot of, like, for example, I know readers who prefer George R. R. Martin's science fiction to his fantasy novels. Right. Um, and, and so on. And they think that the writing is better there, uh, because the task is slightly different. And, and I know people who prefer the early William Gibson to the, to the latter day William Gibson. I'm not one of them, but, um, I really loved, um, his, his early work and it gave me like, it just, I blazed through, through all of those, like through burning chrome and, and so on. Um, but there are times when I'm reading something like the peripheral, or uh, or spook country or zero history where I just sit up straight in my chair and the arms, you know, the the, the hairs on my arms are right. standing at attention. Like I like the prose is so good, um, and it's in part because it's decluttered. Yeah, you know, there's there's room to see the beauty in it because it's not cluttered up with like a lot of explaining of how the world works. Yeah, um, you and you and it's a case of show don't tell, right? I mean, if you if you are watching things unfold, you begin to put the the picture together. And um I think like um Ben Wheatley just did an interview about High Rise where uh where he said, you know, like I don't really ask that my audiences fig- that my audience figure everything out, but I do ask that they be smart. Yeah. And and I presume that they are smart. And um and uh I think that's a really I think that's kind of what I try to aim for as well. Yeah. Is, you know, um, I'm not going to, I, I don't want to talk down to people by explaining. No, I actually, you know, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I think you do it really well. Um, it, the worst kind of writing for me, and this is of course a personal thing because everybody has their own version of what the worst kind of writing or the least entertaining yeah, or the most sure, boring sure. is for me, the worst is 
when a writer co- is condescending and assumes that their reader, you know, needs everything to be explained and you need to be spoon-fed. And that, I hate that. I, I just, it just drives me insane. I don't see why anyone needs to do it. But you'd be surprised yeah. how many people do. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a, there's really a, um, you really start to get this, you know, this sense, especially in big, thick, like, sort of doorstop books, and that that's, that's, that's why they're big doorstops. Right. It's Absolutely. not necessarily because it's it's full of plot or full of story or full of gar- good characterization. It's a ton of explanation yeah. about stuff. And past a certain point, I mean, I think art is a great way to get ideas across. I think that science fiction is, has the power to inspire people to to think about their futures in a really critical um, and meaty and deep way. I, I think that's one of its core values. But I think that you can do yourself a disservice and do the genre a disservice um, by cluttering it up too much uh, with things that are best explained via PowerPoint slide. Like uh, often I will be reading a paragraph of, of something in terms of exposition or in terms of, of explanation where I realize like, wow, I would just really need a bullet point list of this. Right, right. That would be great. <laughs> like, um, and that would also be faster. <laughs> and get us going more quickly yeah. in this in this story, which is supposed to have a plot in it. <laughs> so can we get to the plot, please? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Could, could a thing happen? Could a thing happen? Yeah, I, I like I like it when things happen. Would be things great. Ha- yeah, things happening fast, <laughs> lots of stuff happening. That's always a good thing. Some stuff happening. Some people stuff is a good thing. Changing their circumstances, moving from A to B, making discoveries. That would be great. That would be great. <laughs> All right, now the Company Town playlist that you have up on your site includes some tracks that I really love too, the Tom Waits, the Fiona Apple, Portishead, even a track from Pearl Jam's 10, which of course informed a you know, large part of my, my younger life. Oh, um, yeah, me too. <laughs> Was this all music that you listened to while you were writing? Do you think any of yes. it sort of seeped into your writing in any kind of definitive way that you can you could tell, that you can point out? Uh, there are definitely uh, songs that I listen to over and over and over uh, that are meant to evoke that I listened to while I was putting the novel together. And like, while I was writing certain scenes and there are certain songs that are definitely about specific characters for me. Um, uh, and, and so like I wanted, but there are also songs that just sort of evoke a mood. Like the playlist opens with Tom Waits singing, get behind the mule, which is about, um, going to work, like just going to work. And that's how the that's how the novel opens as well as it was at her job, and uh, she's she's bodyguarding, and uh, and she, that's how the story opens, and that's how the playlist opens. So it's it's a, and more to the point, it sort of evokes like the you know what it is to to be in a place that is about work, to be in a city that is entirely about this this one single minded goal to uh, to extract. First to extract oil and then to um, to build another type of energy device. Uh, so it's it's that single mindedness that I was really interested in. Um, but there are other songs that like are like the the Portishead song is about um, is called Machine Gun and it, it, in my head it takes place during a, a very violent sequence. Um, <clears throat> so there are other there are other songs and by the end like it's it's a lot tenderer and more. Uh, more emotional than how it starts out. 
I mean, you have glory box in there too. Yeah, no, which I think is like this un- again underrated <laughs> um, uh, noir song, um, but it's definitely about about um, Hua as well. Um, uh, but it's about things that she can't say. Like I think, like like a lot of writers, I pick songs for, and and like like much of musical theater as well, I pick songs for emotions that can't be spoken, um, and uh, and stuff. That's the function of a of a song in a musical is to communicate a feeling that that can't be that usually can't be said aloud, um, but it can be sung in that special alt reality of musicals <laughs> where people sing to each other all right. the time. Right. <laughs> um, but also, like, there are certain movies that do that as well. Like, Guardians of the Galaxy is basically a musical in terms of how it uses songs. There's not a lot of people talking about how they feel or what they think. Um, there, but there are a lot of songs about it. Yeah. Uh, in that playlist, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. uh, so I tend to, I tend to do that just to sort of get me in the in the right headspace and and so on. Speaking of headspace, what sort of research did you do for Company Town? And, you know, how much of it was based on things you already knew and thought about, wrote about as a futurist? Um, there was a lot, like, um, uh, in terms of augmented uh, reality and augmented sort of technologies that exist already and, and things like that, um, and technologies that are in development and and so on. Like, there's a lot that... I was able to go back to, you know, concept art for smart cities and for uh, for vertical farm towers and things like that. Um, Research-wise, I read the book that I – there are a couple of books that I that I recommend a lot. Uh, one is Andrew Nikoforek's book, The Energy of Slaves, Oil and the New Servitude, which he does this really interesting thing where he breaks down um, oil into units of energy that can be expressed as humans, as manpower or human power. Um, and he says that the problem of like that slavery in, in many ways develops as, as a way, not just to get free labor, but to create energy and to do the things that electricity now does for us. Um, what the tasks that are performed by electricity and by oil, uh, currently used to be performed by people. And, um, whether it was, you know, people building a fire or people fanning you or people drawing water for you or people milling flour for you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, those used to be done by people. And so he has this way of sort of explaining like what an energy crisis looks like in terms of human power. And as he does that, um, he explains sort of how oil is extracted and what is involved and, um, and so on. So I think that, um, it, that in itself is a really good book. I also read, um, Melissa Garrett Grant's work on sex work or a lot of her articles on sex work. Also Anthony Townsend's stuff on, um, smart cities. Um, I had worked with him previously on some other projects as well. So I kind of like, we knew each other and he could refer me to a lot of different stuff. I also read, uh, Kate Asher's book, The Works, Anatomy of a City, which is sort of everything that you didn't know you already knew about cities. It's sort of this like picture book almost of, um, how utilities work (laughs) and, and stuff. So that sort of, uh, helped out as well. Um, I'm kind of looking around my desk as we speak, um, to, to, uh, to think about stuff. Oh, I had to do, uh, there are a couple of really interesting like YouTube 
deep dives that I did. One was on the Newfoundland accent. Right. I hadn't really included early drafts of the book didn't really have the the Newfie accent in it, um, which I realized was a mistake. And I was really anxious about getting it right and not including too, too much of it um, because you don't want to go all like Margaret Mitchell on it and right. like have phonetic spellings and like all that. And like, you really can't do that. And it's really offensive. And, um, and it's, and it also just clutters up the page and it just looks really wrong. And like, there's only certain writers who can actually do writing in dialect. It's like Anthony Burgess and then like a couple of other people. Um, and so it's really, really rough to do. It's a task. And so I tried to incorporate the Newfoundland uh, accent in a light way so that you were aware that it was there, but you weren't, you weren't being bashed over the head with it. Um, so in order to do that, I had to go listen to it um, on video. <laughs> um, and there's all these videos on YouTube of people demonstrating what the Newfoundland accent is. And they're from Newfoundland and they, they, you know, are just conversing with each other and they occasionally do stuff about like slang terms that exist only there because it is a recognized dialect. It's like, um, it's a, it's a Canadian dialect that is informed a lot by Ireland. Um, and, and so you get these kind of odd, but it's also because it's an Island, like it's the language itself is kind of speciated and made right. itself different. Um, so I spent some time with that. The other thing I spent a lot of time with on YouTube was watching Taekwondo matches. Really? Uh, the, the International Olympic Committee is really great about posting, <laughs> um, uh, prize winning fights, um, between, uh, female, uh, Taekwondo artists and, uh, and practitioners. And so seeing the difference between how men fight versus how, like, versus how women fight, um, the, the, the way the planning and strategy that goes into making certain hits and making certain points and what is allowed and what is not allowed, uh, and stuff like that, that was also fun. Just getting a sense of like how a person with Hua's abilities would kind of would move and what she would get in trouble for. One element of the novel is that her brother was a, um, could have gone professional and chose not to. Um, she and her brother both wanted to repatriate to Korea via the army. And, uh, and so their physical training was part of that. And, uh, she, however, could never have gone professional in her, in her, um, field bec or in that field in part because she constantly does things that are against the rules. Like she's, she has a lot of illegal hits. And so I had to watch a lot of like figure out like how she would have screwed up there, um, and stuff. So, so that was also really fun. Now, let's go back um, a little bit to your earlier novels, to VN and ID, both books about sentient sure. robots, as we mentioned earlier. Was Asimov and those three laws of his, was that ever a touchstone for you, either in a, in a positive way or something you wanted to avoid? I wanted to avoid it. I can't stand those books. <laughs> <laughs> They're really turgid. They're terribly, like, like, the prose is really bad. And the women are usually terrible. And, uh, and so I was aware of them and I ended up reading some of those short stories, which are basically like little mystery stories. They're like little programmer mysteries. Um, they're kind of like thought problems in and of themselves. Um, but the writing to me never like struck me as anything to ever emulate. The ideas are like really interesting and they're a great conversation starter. Um, but I wanted to dig into, in, I wanted to go deeper 
I wanted to sort of talk about the messy side effects um, emotionally and culturally and societally of rules like that and what it would actually look like. Um, you know, it's not just the robot shutting down. It's, you know, the robot essentially having a stroke and dying um, and, and stuff. And what it, what it would be to, to enslave people essentially to, this, to these rules and, and what it would look like to do, to, to do that. And how awful that would be. It's really, it's really, they're really novels about how uh, the fantasy of owning your own robot is, is the fantasy of being a slave owner. Right, absolutely. Tell me about your work as a futurist. What does it mean to have a career <laughs> as a futurist? I, I try to define that like every day, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder is that, is that, that part of, is that part of what it is, what it is? Just to try and, you know, <laughs> figure that out? Yeah, yeah. Uh, defining and redefining the work is something that that I and my colleagues uh, everywhere have to work on all the time. Um, for me, what my practice usually looks like is someone calls me and or sends me an email and says, "Hey, can you write a story about this so that about this given issue so that we can show it to our board of trustees or our engineers or." Um, we can use it to start a conversation at a workshop or we can have an event about, uh, about it or something like that. So I do a lot of sort of what's called science fiction prototyping where they give me a technology and they say, can you write a story about how humans will actually use this? Because we've been working on it for a long time and now we're kind of distant from that problem. Uh, other times it involves stuff like, uh, doing user stories or user, um, sort of user pathways and consulting for technologies that are in development for like patent applications. I do that sometimes. Um, I, my name is on a couple of patents and, um, the, uh, what else? Um, I also just facilitate workshops to help with like things like strategic planning. Um, I help people sort of have the ideas that they always had, but I help bring them out, um, in terms of how do we change this organization what could we be doing better? Uh, do we need to still be doing the things that we are doing now, et cetera, et cetera. Like, uh, so I, I tend to help people have, I help, I tend to help people express the weird ideas that they've kept hidden. Um, which is one of the nice things about being a science fiction writer is that you can do that. People suddenly, when they're around you, they suddenly feel free to have weirder ideas because they know that you also already have them. All right. Now you have another novel coming out from Tor as well. Is that related to Company Town or is that no, a standalone? No, it's, it's a standalone novel. Um, although I really love these characters and would love to work with them again. But the um, the, the novel that I'm working on for Tor uh, is called uh, Upstart. And it's um, it's sort of a... Now I have a really good elevator pitch for it. What is, what <laughs> um, is it? And that's a funny uh, name, by the way. That's already a funny name. So I, can, <laughs> I can just imagine what where that's headed. <laughs> it's about... Uh, it's sort of a um, the circle meets Lord of the Flies uh, meets Gone Girl. Um, it's a story of um, a startup that uh, that sells out to uh, a buyer. Um, someone buys the company, and uh, um, they the startup goes on a you know whirlwind reward trip to the islands. Uh, and crash lands, and it becomes apparent that perhaps their crash landing was not an accident, and uh, and and they sort of have to reveal certain things to each other and 
certain things about the technology that they are working with and what they did and who they sold to and, uh, and so on and so forth. And, uh, that's the, and that's the pitch. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. When is it out? <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad I love it already. Yeah. And the title is funny. <laughs> that's heartening to me. That's, that's encouraging. That's encouraging. When do we expect that? No pressure or anything. I can't, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't want to, I don't want to say anything and then get in trouble for being wrong. All right. <laughs> well, in, in the, in the near future, put it that way. Yes. Yes. All right. And lastly, I have one last question. What do you think of Orphan Black? Oh, I love that show. It's, it's made really close to my house or my apartment. Oh, I really? Don't have a, yeah. Uh, they, uh, they, they shot the season two opener, uh, had a scene in a diner, um, that is really close to where I live. And they actually make, um, they make the show, um, in locations, uh, all over Toronto, to be fair. They're all over Toronto and a lot of, and a lot of sort of the, the greater Toronto area. But, um, but they are, uh, they film really close to us actually. And, uh, and I love that show. I love that show. It's really found its footing again this season. Um, it was kind of losing its focus a little bit before, but now they're they've really sort of refocused and found their voice again. And uh, and they keep, you know, that's a story where things actually happen. Right. Absolutely. You know, that is a it's a it's a hard SF premise. It's a feminist SF premise. Uh, it's politically engaged. And things actually occur. Things actually happen. So from one episode to another, and this is usually how I think about like good television is from one episode to another and good chapters and books from one chapter or one episode or one, you know, unit of fiction has something changed Are the circumstances that we had at the beginning different from the circumstances that we have at the end of the episode. So from top to bottom, has there been a change? And in Orphan Black, that's usually the case. You know, someone discovers something new, uh, someone dies, um, you know, you learn something, you, uh, you move forward, you get more information, you, uh, uh, you resolve a problem, but another problem springs up, you know, it's carrying you somewhere. And, uh, and that's one of the things I really love about that show is that it really just doesn't faff about, like it just gets things done. <laughs> And what about the science? How do you feel about the their angle on and their take on posthumanism? Oh, uh, it's pretty um it's pretty uh realistic. I mean, I could do with fewer like there's there's a lot of it that seems especially in the Neolution storyline of like there are club kids and club kids right. modify themselves and whatever and it's just like I also loved the 90s and because I was there, but I don't need it as much in in uh in um uh in that story. I think that like, I think the thing that is that people sort of forget about stuff like augmentation and post humanity is that like it, it comes up sort of slowly, but steadily in the same way that stuff like smartphones did. Right. I mean, like 20 years ago, you, you couldn't imagine carrying around a thing the size of a deck of cards that, you know, basically knew everything about you and, and um, a lot about the world. Yeah. And was constantly snitching on you to the NSA. Right. Um, and hey, and so, I live in Pakistan. You've no idea how much snitching is being done on me. <laughs> well, yeah, right. See, <laughs> um, and uh, and so it's very, you know, it was tough to imagine that. But yeah. now it's very normal, right? 
and and stuff. So the idea of things like uh, gene editing and CRISPR and um, and implants and and so on and getting and and choosing implants over something like pills. You know, there are a lot of right. people who don't want to take um, Paxil every day. You know, or Wellbutrin or whatever. Um, who would prefer things like deep brain stimulation or or what have you? Like you know. Offering a panoply or a variety of solutions to what are fundamentally human problems is fine, <laughs> and uh, and stuff. And not to be, um, you know, I don't think it's something that we should panic about. What I do kind of panic about is uh, a style of medicine or a style of preventive care that relies a lot on implantation and relies a lot on this type of editing. At a time when we are losing the fight against antibiotic-resistant bacteria, right? Um, your uh, your implant is only as good as your surgeon, and your surgeon is only as as good as his hospital is clean, <laughs> um, and and stuff. So it's that kind of worries me <laughs> that 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 those two trends are going to meet, and they're maybe some problems. Yeah, I can't wait to see how this turns out in the third world. It's <laughs> going to be fantastic. Well, it's not even like And know, by fantastic I mean terrible, but you know. Yeah, no, it's the it's the third it's the, it's it's the third world and 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 a lot of, and many other places as well. And that's one of the things that I I gave a talk recently at Future Everything in Manchester, which is an arts and tech event in Manchester that's amazing and everyone should go. Um and one of the things I talked about there was like the virtue of dystopia and the the virtue of or and and the the sort of problems that arise when we ask only for utopian or dystopian scenarios you know without recognizing that there is a whole spectrum between those two those two ends um that uh that when we automatically characterize an environment or a or a place or uh or or a situation as dystopian we're sort of losing out on the things that that make it livable and even enjoyable for the people who are there um and uh um and that when people talk about dystopia and when they have feelings about like wait until this hits this this place they are speaking from like lived experience right and they they have had those experiences and those are valid and we need to listen to those. Um, there's a lot of utopianism in technology, right? There's a lot of tech utopianism and, and that's a lot of Silicon Valley thinking, right? That, you know, like we're going to get this new invention and it's going to make everything better. Um, and in fact, it may do just that, but there are going to be second order effects to that. So like at the urban design level, for example, uh, city lab, just ran this really great piece. I think it was City Lab. Ran this really great piece on um, what New Orleans looks like now after Katrina, um, and what that has done to front front porch culture, and uh, and sort of front stoop culture. Um, in the past, in uh, in uh, sort of low income neighborhoods and and um, and and assisted neighborhoods. Um, there was a front porch culture where you sat outside and you met your neighbors and you did each other's hair and like you hung out. Like it's just hanging out, right? You watch the kids outside playing like normal stuff. Um, now since Katrina, 
since new projects have been built, all of the regulations around front culture have changed because they were, frankly, written by white folks <laughs> and written by white folks who had never experienced that culture um, and, and didn't see why, you know, more than three people might want to gather together outside of a building hanging out. Right. Neighbors, right? And, it's, and so, you know, when you make way for something that's new, um, it's important to to sort of take into account um, how people actually use things, how your user uses their space, how your how your um, how humans work <laughs> essentially, and and stuff, and plan around and plan around that, and 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 take that into account, and understand what makes uh, what makes dystopias livable and utopias. Uh, inimical <laughs> to human life. All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm looking forward to the, the new book, um, you know, as I said, <laughs> yeah, sometime no, in me, the near future. Yeah, me too. Me too.